Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. This was the war that Abraham Lincoln called unconstitutional. And Ulysses S. Grant labeled one of the most unjust wars ever waged. But the president who waged it, James Polk, believed the U.S. had ample cause. Known as Mr. Polk's War, its goal was to expand America's border to the Pacific by taking nearly half of Mexico's territory. It was the first battle for West Point graduates Ulysses S. Grant, George McClellan, and Robert E. Lee. The United States Air Force, in discharging its responsibility for the aerospace defense of the nation, is called upon to investigate reports of unidentified flying objects. Ty Webb, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Mateblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato. Enlighten me. I've been reading lately. What you been reading about? Well, I've been... I've read a couple of books recently. Um, I've gotten on a Mexican-American war kick. It's a fascinating time that we don't know anything about as yes. students of the 90s. And then I've also... It was time for me to reread... Blood Meridian again this year. Once again, I I, I tip my hat to you for it. What I did this go around was I was like, you know what? I know how hard it is to read that book. I'm going to get the audio version. Okay. So I've been listening to it. All right. How's that going uh, for you? It's going good. I enjoy it. You know, because that deals with the aftermath of the Mexican-American War. Sure. But yeah, that is a... To me, there's two... mm, well, shit, three wars in American history that we don't know enough about, that we don't really ever talk about. First one being the Mexican-American War. Right. Second one being the Spanish-American War. Yep. Third one being the Korean conflict. And to me, that one... What about the Filipino insurrection? Well, there you go. Which, that ties into the Spanish-American War. It is War. tied to it, yes. Yeah. The, uh, but Korea got overshadowed by Vietnam, you know, because that was... So soon afterwards. I've watched several hundred hours of documentary about the Korean War. You may have heard of it. It stars Alan Alda. It's a documentary called MASH. Yes, a little yes. documentary okay. called MASH. Right. Well, the uh, what was interesting in this one book that I just got through reading about, uh, and it's actually more about the life of uh, Kit Carson and all the adventures that he went on, but it talked a lot about the Mexican-American War. So he played a big role in it. And uh, it was interesting to, I mean, because I know the purpose of the Mexican-American War was the United States wanted to be a continental country. They wanted harbors on the West Coast as well as the East Coast. They wanted, you know, sea to sea, sea to shining sea. And we still had that annoying part of Mexico sticking up its finger up our butt. Exactly. We still had... At the time, New Mexico, Arizona, which New Mexico and Arizona were just the New Mexico territory. Right. Then you had Colorado, Nevada, and 
the Oregon Territory. Which Before was, we go too much further into 19th century history, this is Can You Hear Me, the podcast. Oh, yes. This week, two guys talking about wars you may not know about. Yes. And our third guy, he's still off doing mysterious things. Mysterious things. He may be trying to start some type of insurrection. We don't know that he's not. Right. You know, out of the three of us, he is the most mysterious. Yes, absolutely. And he's the one that could put something like that in. Like, I can see him coming back and say, okay, look, guys, I've been in Cuba for the past couple of weeks, and I've been talking with folks. We can take that place over. And and then he'd leave it at that. Right. And then me and you would start you know, working on the logistics. Exactly. Of it, the how-to. Exactly. Exactly. And then he becomes president of Cuba. He's very much face. Yes. From the A-team. Absolutely. And that person, of course, is Ty Webb. And you can tweet your ideas for insurrections to TyWeb3000. And I'm Gustav Montebank, and you can tweet at me at RealGustav. And I am the one and only America's favorite, Heavy Longmire. You can tweet me at Longmire Heavy. And you can email us at CanYouHearMePod at gmail.com. Now, back to the Mexican-American War. Okay. And so... Basically, the gist of it was President Polk kind of aggravated Mexico enough and what's started our, a war. What's our with year them. range there for those not? 1840 to 18. I think it might have been like 1841 to 1846. The Republic of Texas is now part of the United States. Correct. We had just become, and that's part of what, also what part of what started it. Is uh, I believe Texas became a state in what eighteen forty or eighteen forty one? I can't remember exactly. You can one of those email uh, uh, below the belt pod and at Yahoo or whatever the hell his shitty email is, and Brad can tell you. You're right, or you just Google it. Yeah, and uh, but anyway, Polk wanted to make sure that uh, the because Mexico had never. Um, Recognized? Recognized Texas, the Republic of Texas legitimacy. So once they were, um, Mexico kind of looked at it as the United States was taking Texas from them. So Polk uh, stirred the pot by taking troops down to the Rio Grande, which Mexico said Rio Grande's not the border with Texas. The Nueces River is. And so anyway, Polk started a war. To get Texas, New Mexico Territory, California, to go all the way to the coast. And it was, and I read one little blip here recently, and I need to double check, but it, I could have swore this said, and this will need some fact checking, um, that per capita in soldiers fighting, mm-hmm. that the Mexican American War was the deadliest war that the United States has ever fought in. Really? And I read that, because I, I actually read that sentence three times. I was like, I'm not reading that right. That doesn't sound right. I would have thought the Civil War was. Uh, yeah, I mean, because uh, I didn't think we had that much resistance. Well, there weren't any big battles here, but there were big battles down in Mexico. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's not right. I had to have read the sentence wrong. So, Brad, correct me on that. Um, but it is interesting to... You know, because, of course, we've, as we've mentioned before, history is written by the victors. Right. But it's interesting to see what other politicians of the time were thinking of this war as it was happening. How how popular a war was it? And I, I realize 
we're mid 1800s. There's not a lot of mass communication, right? For the which the country was still young enough that the ideals of what the country was founded on were still extremely fresh. Right. They were already kind of getting over being pissed off about Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, which he, by all by the Constitution, did not have the authority to, make, right. to do that. But he did. But it was a hell of a deal. A hell of a deal, you know. And uh, so then at this point, a lot of politicians didn't like the fact that we were starting a war with a peaceful neighbor. Right. And taking half their country for them, from them. Because we could have kept on going. I mean, we... Yes. We, and that's another interesting point, because I've oft wondered in my limited studies of that war, hey, we invaded Mexico City, whipped their ass down there, yeah. we whipped them everywhere. Why didn't we just take all of Mexico? Short answer, because of racism, we didn't like the Mexican. Okay. And Catholicism. We did not like the Catholic. Yeah, there was serious anti-Catholicism in the and there States were at the time. Lots or a couple of brigades of Irishmen. Yes. Who came up from Ireland straight to Mexico that were, you know, Catholic Irishmen right. to fight with Mexico against this aggressive nation, the United States. And there is a Movie, it may have been made by HBO back in the 80s with Tom Berenger as a dragoon. Is that any good? I've seen that. I can't remember. I need to revisit. I can't I, remember the name I, of it right off the bat. I, I ran across that a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, it can be hit and miss with Tom Berenger. He's one of my favorites, but I agree. It's not always great. Yeah. But so here's a footnote for me because, you know, I, I like. The accoutrements and the uniforms. I'm, mm -hmm, a, you know, a mm -hmm. geek when it comes to that sort of thing. I think one of the baddest ass looks of the entire history of the military of the United States were the dragoons going to fight in the Mexican American yeah. War. It's not a practical no uniform it at all. It talks about in this how just freaking miserable these guys but were. But just that high collar and that kind yeah. of kind of little hat. Yeah. Just looks bad and with a saber and you're right. It's badass, but yeah, it's totally impractical. Well, and that's what was uh, when it got into some of these battles. I mean, firearms at that time had advanced a little bit, right? But not but a Mexico lot. Mexico was still fighting with shit that would have been used that yeah. we fought the revolution. Flintlocks, yeah. yeah, and we're we're rolling in there with percussion. I don't think we had a whole lot of revolvers probably by that point, no. but we definitely had percussion rifles, which is you know. Night and day versus a flintlock. Right. And one thing, I talk about just the brutality of it, it talks about this one battle in Santa Fe, around Santa Fe somewhere. And uh, it's like 1,500 Mexican troops or something like that come up against three or 400 Americans. Over half of the Mexican forces have nothing but lances. No shit. And they're charging with freaking lances, like it's freaking Roman time. And it talks about all these... Cavalry with lances? Infantry. Infantry with lances. Infantry. Like pikes. Yes. So Nine-foot lances with three-foot metal shafts. Shit. Sh sword shafts. You know, and it talks about some of the injuries sustained from this, and there would be lots of these deep slashes, mm -hmm. just real short... Like in the ribs right. and, you know, necks. Yeah, because you're going for the center of the body. And uh, it's like, God almighty, you know. And 
And then it talked about all the folks that would die, for, and they would uh, put poison. Right. They'd dip those shafts, and they had a mixture of some kind of cactus juice, which is sticky. Mm-hmm. So, and then they'd dip it in feces yeah, just, and all kinds of shit just to, and, you know, cause infections. Yeah. But it talked about from these cuts like that. So, it, you know. There's no antibiotics. Yeah, there's no antibiotics, and just the the disease the, from infections and stuff like that. It was just, I mean, it's brutal listening to some of this. And, uh, yeah, but it is a fascinating war. And the one book I was reading goes into great detail about the the hardships of New Mexico, right. New Mexico territory, and how the American forces from back east, another in, or American forces from back east are like, why in the fuck are we even fighting for this place? Yeah, it's nothing but dirt. It's not like Colorado where, I mean, it's rocky and, but it's, it's there's scrub. some green. Yeah, it's this is it's just blowing sand and fucking just there's you know water was a bitch trying to get to. Sorry, Bo, our listener there in Santa Fe. Yeah, which I have always really enjoyed New Mexico, and this book made me want to go right back to northern New Mexico. Yeah, that New is Mexico a place we, we have always loved, and we're gonna take a field trip out there. Yeah, one of these days we need to. But there's a big difference driving happily. In our automobile, whether even when we didn't have air conditioner, yeah, it's still night and day versus walking. Like you were talking about Kit Carson having to walk yeah. after he lost his mule through Arizona mm-hmm. or even riding. Well, I think it was Kearney's troops marched from St. Louis to fucking Santa Fe. Yeah. Fought in Santa Fe, then kept on marching uh, to California. Then they came back to Santa Fe, ducked down into uh, Sonora, and then I mean, then walked back to fucking St. Louis. It's like, son of a bitch. Yeah. It, it's not like walking through, you know, Alabama, Mississippi. I mean, no, not at all. Out there, you know, we've mentioned this before, you know, in past episodes about camping and some of our, the environments that we're most uncomfortable in, and we've mentioned desert just yeah. because, I mean water just becomes such you a don't big know. deal you know and, and uh, that's one of the things that to us i know that's always bothered us when we read blood meridian that we feel the pressure mm-hmm. of the environment which i think McC- mccarthy does a great job but i don't think if you've ever actually haven't been out in that and haven't had to find water or ha- had to get to the next watering hole right i don't think you really appreciate just the the sense of anxiety that it causes oh, man and these yeah these were some tough bastards man it was it was unbelievable but another thing i've always found interesting in reading about uh the mexican-american war is the guys who are like captains or lieutenants that then we really see their name in the civil war yeah it, it was like the uh the apprentice program yes for the generals of the civil war yeah because it's interesting seeing you know, Sherman and uh, I can't think of another one off the top of my head right now, but ones that fought together that in would the eventually American War, and then well, when Lee they, was Lee was on that campaign. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, who. Uh, Lee was Grant was uh, who was the badass uh, Zachary Taylor, right? He's a, Stonewall Jackson was, I think. Or no, he's younger. Mm, he's quite a bit younger. I don't think that he fought in the Mexican-American War. There's somebody that was, maybe it was Hood. 
Yeah, Hood did. Uh, McLaren. That sounds right. Kearney. Um, Fremont. Yeah. A uh, whole bunch of them that, you know, then end up making a name for themselves in the Civil War, which then is interesting to see 10 and 20 years later, some of those same guys from the Civil War who you read about in during the Indian Wars. Right. The, you know? the younger ones. Right. The younger survived. ones that, that survived the Civil War. I can't remember which one because the two of them blur together in my mind. But remember in the early 80s, you had the Civil War miniseries. Mm-hmm. So there we was... had the blue, in, the blue and the gray and the North and the North South. North and South. North and, and South had Patrick Swayze. Yeah. One of them had, at the start, the first episode, it had a little bit about the Spanish, or about the Mexican-American War and how it was the the proving ground for these future generals. Like, mm-hmm. it showed a couple of them, the younger officers at that war, and then jump ahead. Yeah. 20 years later, you yeah. get the... I need to go back. I'd like to go back and watch. I think it was Blue and Gray. That, that was the was, better of the two, I that think. That was the one with Stacy Keach, where he was like the badass, crazy okay. commander. And it was grittier, whereas right. North and South it was, was... more of a romance. Yeah, like kind people of ripping open their bodices and right. the guys were better looking. Yeah. Yeah. That was more of the romantic uh, endeavors. But yeah, fascinating read. Yeah. Uh, Got a June bug there? Yeah, I got a June bug on nice. the, in the studio here. Damn, that time of year. June bug flew from the warmth once new, and I wish for once you weren't right. John Prine. Ah. First album. Anyway, um, I have been reading a little Project Blue Book talk from the uh, UFO realm. Really? From the officer that was in charge of it originally. Let me get his name here, and I'm not sure the pronunciation um, Edward J. It's either Ruppelt or Rupelt. I'm not sure. I never have okay. heard it pronounced. You know, we always hear Project Blue Book. That was the Air Force's UFO investigation in the 50s and the 60s and how it's a conspiracy and all this right. stuff. And this was the actual guy that was in charge of it. He was a captain. And for about two or three years at the very start of it, he doesn't say, hey, these were flying saucers. But in my mind, I was always thinking they're investigating all of these civilian reports. And it's almost entirely them investigating military reports and military scientists that are working on radar and atomic stuff mm-hmm. and commercial airline reports. Very few of the reports they actually got to the point where they investigated were civilians. So it's not Bob saying he got anal probed right. that you meet down at the feed store. It's radar reports that then they had scrambled from fighters. From the 70s and 80s? From the 50s. Okay, from the 50s. And big time stuff, like things, there was one big, they call it the big Washington flap, where all around D.C. they had scrambled jets, and again, the jets weren't, you know, we're not talking Top Gun stuff here, mm-hmm. so they're not as fast as they are now. But radar objects that they're finding here, and then they scramble jets to go look at them, and you've got visual confirmation from the pilot. You've got on the radar scope sometimes multiple mm-hmm. installations, and at the time, I didn't know about this till I started reading it. They had a civilian 
observation corps that was tied to the government were people just spotting stuff to fill in the gaps mm-hmm. for radar coverage. So you had civilian observers every night and day, I guess, just scanning the skies for the Soviets, I guess. Wow. And they're picking up stuff, and then they report it, and then they scramble, you know, and this is all over the country. It's not just over Los Alamos or right. D.C. or things like that. And they never did, in this guy's book, and he wrote this after he got out of the service, never did say, okay, these are flying saucers. But tons and tons of instances where these are veteran pilots, guys that flew in World War II, Korea, and they're seeing stuff and they're chasing stuff that they could like get close to and then it would just pull away and right. just disappear. Just tons of it. And they never, you know, their final report at the time that he got out was inconclusive. Inconclusive. They, they classified 26% of their investigations as unknown that they couldn't say, okay, this is a weather balloon. And at the time they had these big skyhook balloons mm-hmm. that were often misconstrued as right. UFOs, but they knew exactly where they were. Right. And they had all their weather patterns, and they knew where their flights were, and there weren't as much commercial aircraft. Mm-hmm. And at the time, all the commercial aircraft were just prop-driven. There were no jets at the mm-hmm. time. So the only thing that were jets they knew about... Was military. Military. And they were limited. They hadn't broken the sound barrier yet for anything except the experimentals. Right. And... 26% of the reports they couldn't explain away as either uh, atmospheric phenomena yeah. or uh, astro- astronomical phenomena or actually something else. It's interesting because I was, was actually one day last week or week before last thinking about we don't hear UFO stories and UFO sightings as much as we used to. No, it was huge when we were kids in yeah. the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. And I you know, reading this because obviously this book was written in like 1955 uh-huh. and he died about 1960 from a heart attack. Totally not. But I'm sure somebody out there says, Oh, right. They got it to him, right. You know? But, um, when we were young, that was huge. Now we watched things like Ripley's believe it or not mm-hmm. in search of and unsolved mysteries and things like that. And we had close encounters of the third kind mm-hmm. and tons of movies about it. I got to thinking with all of our satellite coverage now, you know, you would think that if nothing else, if they were still happening, mm-hmm. we would hear about it more. Exactly. But I don't know. I mean, and one of the things they talk about here is obviously they had observers around places like Los Alamos and mm-hmm. White Sands, stuff like that. Lots and lots of activity there. Right. Now, again, these are focusing on military observations, so that's where the people are. Mm-hmm. But when they did a, uh, one of the things they did was they had a study of all of these people that are these scientists that they were dealing with, and out of them, you know, they had a much higher instance of observation that they had seen something than the general public. Like they when they were right. flying on commercial. Mm-hmm. They would just talk to people and they wouldn't be in uniform. Right. And people were like, Oh yeah, I don't believe in that. You know, that's nothing. You know, yeah. these guys had a much higher instance yeah. of observation. Now one that still, and within the last year, I've watched the video of it again and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. The Phoenix lights. Right. 
That's bizarre as shit. Right. And then there were the Lubbock lights in the 50s, which are similar to, I mean, the same, maybe not in the same layout, but the same sort of thing. Really? And this one, they had two instances where they had, um, they call it the Montana film. I can't remember what the other name of it is, but you had, for the Montana film, it was close to Billings, I think. Okay. And it was a baseball coach that films these two bright metallic objects flying around super fast. And he actually gets like a, uh, they pass behind a water tower before they disappear. It's not up close. It's like eight millimeter, right. you know, but it's color. and inconclusive on that one they could right. but it fell into their unknown category and then there was another one it was a navy aerial photographer that had flown like two thousand hours flight time knew what he was doing right they're driving across country through utah they see something that's like eight or nine objects up in the sky and he gets out and films it he swears that he's when he saw it it looked like something metallic and he could tell that it was saucer shaped and apparently the saucer thing was a big deal right uh, back then and the cigar shape and the cigar shape yes yeah. and you can't tell it because you know how when you take a picture of something it always looks further away right. because of the focal length but he said i could see it it was close enough that it looked like saucer shape mm -hmm. and these objects move around and move around and then all of a sudden, one of them just heads off east super fast. And he he said he moved the camera and caught it crossing over to try and give them a chance. But mm -hmm. there's nothing to compare it against. Right. That one, they kind of explained away that it might have been seagulls around the, the Great Salt Lake. But then it might not have. And that didn't explain how one just shot away. Right. So, you know... I don't know. That that has always fascinated me. And yes, in our youth, there was always stuff. Like, I remember an episode of something disproving UFO sightings. And it showed all the things that people can misinterpret. Right. As, and the one that always sticks out to me, and I think about, because it actually happened to me one time. And I was like, damn, that does, if you didn't know mm -hmm. it. It was like going down a dark country road and there's a hill mm -hmm. if somebody's coming up the back side of right. it high beams on up on the clouds and yeah you get a crazy looking yeah uh, light experience you know i don't know what you call that and and uh and some of the other ones were common ways of that people would make films mm -hmm. fake films you know kind of mm -hmm. like the the pie plates yeah you know, the hubcap thrown right. and stuff like that yeah and, uh, they and that was one of the things that he talked about is that from their civilian stuff they were usually really easy to either explain because of okay we knew that they were operating a skyhook balloon that got up to sixty thousand feet mm -hmm. you know and it, the wind was going in a westerly direction they right. could lay that out and the Photographic evidence that they got—that was usually really easy to, right. you know. They they turn remember it over that, the the lab and they shoot it down in a heartbeat. Which I can't remember if it was a if a uh, theater movie or just a made for TV movie. Uh, Fire in the sky. I remember that. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, that and was uh, DB Sweeney in that. I think so. It was these loggers in northern Arizona, right? And. And that's a true them, story. Yes, it's yeah. based off a true story. And uh, 
As always, I've always found it fascinating. It's really, if y'all, I'm sure you can find it somewhere on YouTube. Yeah, I'm sure or something. it is out there. It's really good. It's probably really dated now. Probably, but at the time uh, it was pretty bad. It came out late 80s. Yeah, 87 or so. But I've often wondered with folks that have abduction stories and abduction experience, how much mental health plays into that. Well, there's that. Because you don't hear about it as much anymore, but you hear different stories from folks who may have schizophrenia Uh that have hallucinations and delusions. There's a, uh, you know, one thing that I've read about that uh, a lot of the, at least the, maybe not abduction, but a lot of the, where the aliens visit, Mm -hmm. in that generation, like people, our parents' generation, where they underwent surgery as a small child, mm-hmm. and because of the anesthesia that they used to use, yeah, that it created this Getting false memory. Gotcha. And somebody hovering over you, yeah, in a somebody mask. hovering over you, yeah. and things like that. That maybe was repressed, and then later on it comes in a dream, but right. it, because it's so vivid, right? That that, and I've read, you know, that's one of those things. It's speculation. There's right. no way to prove that or not, but it does. It would. It would kind of fit mm-hmm. as that generation has probably, if they're going to think of that, they've already thought of that. And now people our age, where we never were under that type of anesthesia right. when we had our tonsils out, we don't experience the same thing. So yeah. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. I found this interesting because it did focus mostly on technical people and dealing with things that couldn't be explained away right. and, and hardly there was only one instance that he talked about and i'm pretty sure he was playing cards pretty close to the vest because mm-hmm. he still had contacts and i think he was still in the aerospace industry right. so he wasn't wanting to burn any bridges right exactly but he only talked about one uh, close encounter and not even a close encounter of me to an alien type thing but it was a scoutmaster in florida that he was driving some boys home after a meeting out, and they were in a rural area. Saw a light out in the, not really swamp, but kind of that scrub mm-hmm. that's in southern Florida. So he was worried that it was a plane that had gone down because he could see these lights off mm-hmm. the road. So he went out, and the boys are watching him as he's bouncing, trying to chop through this palmetto stuff. And he said that the light hovered over him. And he comes back with burns, kind of like in Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. And as they started to interview him, but the boys didn't see that. They couldn't mm-hmm. see that part. And the boys got freaked, and they ran to a farmhouse down the road and called the sheriff. So the sheriff gets out there. This guy's got some burns, but his cap is singed. And they started to kind of like, well, he's kind of, he went AWOL from the service, and he's not as great a guy as you think he is. Right. What time period did this happen this in? the 50s, about okay. 52. But then when they did soil samples, the roots had been burned. Not the not the upper part. Not the upper part, but like Some it had gotten so superheated. Yeah. It wasn't radioactive. That okay. was one thing. And they couldn't just dispel him as, oh, this is a hoax. Right. Because there were factors that were like, eh, we can't explain why in this radius right. that he said it was, and they went out there and dug up soil samples, and they sent the soil to the lab, and they didn't think anything of it because they were looking to see if there was anything chemical about mm-hmm. it. And they're like, hey, how did they heat this up to 300 degrees 
without machinery. You know, mm-hmm. why didn't you tell us about this? And they're like, well, there wasn't anything there that you couldn't even get machinery to it. Right. And um, they did have one thing where there were a group of scientists that happened to be working on military stuff, and they were observing, and they were getting spikes, infrequent radioactive spikes on Geiger counters that were out in the middle of nowhere, and that timed with when they were seeing Hmm. odd things that they couldn't explain. It's interesting, which, as an adult now, I chalk it up to military stuff. Right. That's just kind of my default. Ah, it's sure. fucking military. Because I remember when we were in high school, I guess it was 91, but, uh, when they, no, because Gulf War was 91, would have been before that, when they first released pictures of the first stealth bomber. Right. I remember thinking, holy shit, that is the most wicked looking thing. Well, we never had all seen the... anything like that. And they'd been testing that, working on it since Vietnam. Right. And, we, you know, we used to have, and it was a TV movie, I think, Hangar 18. Remember that? Where I vaguely. They were supposed to have a spacecraft, or at least spa- parts of a spacecraft mm-hmm. at Hangar 18. And then, of course, later on, we start hearing about Area 51. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of things that. And you go back to the, I don't know if you ever heard of the Fermi paradox. Mm-mm. So Enrico Fermi was one of the, you know, masterminds behind the atomic age. And I think it, it, I, it gets attributed to him. I'm not sure if it actually, he said it, but right. some scientists are having lunch. He's like, you know, the place is so big. There's got to be somebody out there. But if so, why haven't we found them? Or why haven't they found us? Right. And then you get into, well, how big the universe is right. and how without having some way to actually transverse you know time basically basically because you get into the relativity like i don't know if you ever read like brief history of time or in that hawking shit or uh, Einstein stuff. i started a brief history in time basically brief, like in a nutshell even if you could get close to the speed of light and you could travel just like a millisecond behind it if it took you a year to get to a distant point. Well, you're going at the, almost the speed of light, but everybody else is still going at the normal speed. Mm-hmm. So while you're gone a year, your home place has gone a hundred years or a thousand years. I can't right. remember the exact. So even if you can get back a year out and a year back for you, everybody you know is dead because right. it's been two hundred years right. because you've warped time. So you'd have to figure out some way to get past that. Which, you know what, I mean, 50 years ago, people said we could never break, or not 50, 70 years ago, people were saying we couldn't break the speed of sound. Right. You'd die. Yeah. And, you know, 100, 200 years ago, they were saying you couldn't go over 20 miles an hour, you'd die. Right. So, who knows? But I, I it was a it was a free ebook off of uh, Amazon. Really? And... I was a look for that. It wasn't the most, it's not the easiest to read. Yeah. But it's just kind of... This is an insider mm-hmm. just kind of telling you what he thought. He never says, okay, there's flying saucers. But obviously... There's something. There's They I were mean, seeing something. What yeah. it was, I don't know. And it, it wasn't your normal, you know, well, I saw a light out in the pasture. Right. I, I remember when I was a kid, I think it was Venus or maybe Mars, but it was a planet. Uh-huh. It was way brighter and it was low on the horizon. And I was like, holy shit, there's something out there. Right. And then I'm like, oh, I learned, you know, years later, eh. It's a planet. Planet. Yeah. Kind of like when I learned that uh, about Subaru. There you go. Yes. What else so, you been yeah. reading? 
Um, let me see. Uh, I stumbled upon a book recently that I, I bought back in college. I didn't even know I still had it. And it's odd because it ties in with this. It's called Fire in the Mind. Okay. And the guy that wrote it, he's a scientist, a physicist, slash, I guess he's just a physicist. But he, the book he's talking about, I mean, it's nonfiction. He worked the majority of his career in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks a lot about, has a lot of scientific jargon in there that I have long since forgotten anything about. But the main point of the book is, it's interesting because it talks about how when the U.S. and the military in our testing facilities was almost in line with the same, set between the same four mountains mm-hmm. that the Navajo held sacred. You got White Sands, uh, Los Alamos, and then up north. There's White Sands, the one that's up north. I can't remember. I can't remember either. But anyway, he goes into talking about the paradox between, you know, New Mexico's always been an impoverished area. You know, even when it was part of Mexico, that was an impoverished yeah, area. Not uh, the... Uh the hotbed of economic development. Yeah. You know, ever since it's been a U.S. state, it's been an impoverished area. And it was talking about how all of a sudden you get, you know, used to the, you had the Native Americans, maybe the Apache and the Navajo. Well, then you have the Mexicans come up, or the Spanish, and they introduce Catholicism and try to convert the Indians. And so you get this mix of a different kind of Catholicism that kind of still ties into some Native American thinking. Right. Which kind of, in general, happened after the the initial, because, you know, the initial influx of Catholicism in the New World, it was, we're going to chop your hands off exactly. if you don't, you know. Right. But they kind of figured out, we can kind of blend it in exactly. and slip it. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of like Christian did with paganism. Right. And, uh. And then it talks about in the 40s how you have this influx of scientists, American right. scientists into the area that have this total different view on everything. Yeah. You know, it's stuff that the locals aren't used to. It's stuff that and, uh, and how a lot of them were intrigued with the Native American history mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And so how over about a 30 year period, you get this almost kind of a mysticism melted in between scientific thinking, Catholicism, and Native American right. uh, histories. And so if you got this when you're in college, this is at the height of the New Age era. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was bleeding in, you know, referencing right. as far as this. Uh, and that was, you know, Santa Fe and Taos were the, I don't know. The, Out, the, outside of the epicenter. Place. Well, yeah. outside, I would call it the epicenter. What's that place in Arizona? Where people go for the crystals and that uh, kind of shit. Is it Scottsdale? No. no. Flag, not Flagstaff. Uh, anyway. Sub, sub, Sonora? S- no. Sedona. Sedona. I think that's, to me, the hotbed of Maybe. the New Age era. But yeah, Taos and Santa Fe, for sure, as well, are in there. But it was, it was an interesting read. You know, it's one guy's thought. Right. But I, but I do remember, I don't think you were with me on this trip. No, it was a ski trip. Yeah, it wasn't me then. Might we have been were Ty. Up in New Mexico, and it was 
before smartphones and stuff, we had internet. So I made a map mm-hmm. off. I think it was uh, oh, who was the old map maker? Maps Co. Uh, no. MapQuest. Um, no. Rand McNally. Rand McNally had a a buddy of mine at school had a Rand McNally program. Ooh, on CD-ROM. On CD-ROM, where you could plat out your course, and it would tell you every, like I say, you only have an Exxon card. It's going to show you every Exxon station along the way, all the mileage, just, you know, things to see along the way, which is pretty freaking cool. It's pretty nice, actually. And uh, so, anyway, I had our itinerary all mapped out. Well, somehow we got off beat and ended up in this little bitty-ass New Mexican town down in the foothills, just a mm-hmm. nothing but adobe and right. dirt blowing. Not a tourist destination. Not a tourist destination. We're like, all right, we got to get through this town, and it's it's spring break, so I'm guessing we stumbled upon some type of Easter type celebration, right? Of uh, the townsfolk in colorful Native American garb. With huge marching, with huge crucifixes, uh-huh. with the most morbid-looking depiction of a bleeding Jesus right. you could ever imagine. Yeah, that's that's a and, uh, common thread throughout all of your, um, I think, most of your expansion outside of Europe and outside of the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Anywhere that's not that, like, you get into... Uh, the Philippines, yeah, yeah, and South America and Central America. Well, then there were a handful of guys, I believe, in the lead leading the procession that were basically just wearing breech cloths, uh-huh. breech clouts, and were wearing uh, crowns, crowns of thorns. of thorns, and was flagellating, flagellating, them. yep. flagellating themselves with these whips on their backs as they as they walked. We stopped and looked for a minute, and they were all chanting something. We you like, have never told me about Holy this. Holy shit, that's unfreaking believable! And uh, you got all these colorful Navajo blankets and crazy ass headdress stuff going. Right. But it, it was nothing. Yeah, it was just it was odd. And we just kind of look at it as it marches past us, and we're like, huh, that's fucking weird. And uh, and you cracked open a Budweiser, and cracked open a Budweiser, and went about our way. You, you have know? never told me about that. And I, I thought I had. Interesting. I, like it was, you did. It was, I don't remember. It was very interesting, and uh, but it was. It's funny because I remember. Then I read this book about a year later, and I was right. like, "Yeah, not, that's kind of yeah, fit in." They kind of mesh their own stuff up, you know. Now that's that's a that's a it's a fascinating area, and I haven't been in maybe I don't know. Me and Mrs. Gustav went through there. I guess we rolled through Santa Fe about seventeen years ago. Yeah. Maybe that. Now, have you ever been? I've been to the Pueblos there at the Taos area. That's the only one I've been to. Okay. You haven't been to the big one? No, I've just been to the one to to the north of Taos Um, where they don't have power or they didn't back when I went. uh, They didn't when they built them either. Thanks. There's no electrical outlets in any of those Pueblos. Yeah. Nice. No Wi Fi, nothing. Another place I want to visit, and I think it's probably just a fucking sign in the road now, is Adobe Walls. Yeah. Out yeah. in the panhandle. Yep. Yeah. Now tell people why you want to go to Adobe Walls. Adobe Walls was in the, uh, where Kit Carson put up a stand against about 1,500 
to 2,000 Comanches. It was the American government's, U.S. Army's real first battle right. against the Comanches. And they sent Kit Carson out there in the winter to go find them. And how many how many people did he have with him? He had it about, wasn't, I think he had a five to 800. Was it that many? I didn't know it was that but many. But at that point, his troops were split. So right. he was down to about 400 people, and they got into the... Uh, uh, into the Canadian River uh-huh. down in just the, the washout area. And his Ute scouts came back and said, yeah, there's a bunch of Comanches camped up here. Ended up, it was actually just a Kiowa camp. So the Kiowas were camped outside mm-hmm. of the Comanche camp. And uh, so they were going to raid the Kiowas. Kiowas sniffed them out and chased them back. And Adobe Walls was an old... Um, Outpost trading post from Bent's Fort that was down towards New Mexico. Which I have been to Bent's old fort. Have you? Yeah. Okay. Well, Adobe Walls was their restocking satellite from between St. Louis and and Bent's Fort, and so he holed up there, Kit Carson and his and his boys, and held held out against about two thousand Comanches. And the only thing that saved them was their mountain howitzers. Because it scared the shit out of the Indians. Which we, if we could save up our quarters, I would love to get. We one can of get those. a mountain howitzer from Dixie Gunworks. <laughs> I would love to get one of those. Wouldn't it be so odd? Oh, it'd be great. Just yeah, just a boom. Be awesome. So uh, while I was, you know, we talked last episode how I was stuck working nights up in Washington. I didn't really have a whole lot to do other than hand holding while I was mm-hmm. there. So and I was on. You know, I was, I didn't want to just search whatever. So I, I was looking around archive.org. I don't know if you've ever, uh, hey, several years ago, I, I did. So they've been in the news recently because of the thing about, um, uh, I don't even know who she is, Joy Reid and some anti, you know, know. gay homophobic. So I guess she's some news anchor on like MSNBC or something, but there was some, a blog that she used to have that somebody went and found on the Wayback Machine that archive.org maintains and they had some homophobic things she said or whatever. Anyway, that's not my point. I couldn't give a shit about Wayback Machine. Archive.org though, and I don't know who pays for it, but they are amassing millions of documents. Books scanned, download it, read it online. Really? um, Audio, video. They have an app? I don't think they have an app. Okay. But there's a whole like drive-by. Archive.org, if you're listening, you need to work on that. Drive-by trucker section, if you want to go. Really? Yes. If you want to go look at that. Anyway. They have the albums? I don't, I didn't go dig into it. I think it's like, I think it's live stuff. stuff. Grateful Dead stuff. No, I think it's like live performances. Really? Grateful Dead, like millions of Grateful Dead concerts or however many the hell they did. Three million. Um, But crazy documents and books like. They might be a lot of it's old. It's not like new stuff. Well, yeah, stuff. that's good because there's some old stuff I've been looking for and I can't find that shit but anymore. It's got a pretty decent search engine, but you will get sucked into the rabbit hole. I bet, man. And there's a section where they've got people building cannons. There's huh. there's some documents that are military grade, how to make your own whatever. Probably shouldn't be out there. You might not want to download those on the work computer. That's right. But uh Lots of historical stuff, lots of Vietnam stuff, lots of World War II things. Huh, interesting. There's lots of pro-communist and 
actual communist documents. There's lots of Nazi documents. There's every political spectrum. You know, it's wow. just insane. 19th century stuff, rare books. Who in the hell, I wonder, is organizing well, all this? Some of it's archivists at major libraries, like university libraries, huh. scanning their rare okay. books. Okay, it's just like a uh, open source. Basically. Uh, and you website. can get it in PDF form. You can get it in the form for Kindles. Just I'll be all damn. kinds of stuff. I'm going to check that out. I know now, what I'm doing Sometimes tonight. the scans... Like, I downloaded a book about, well, it was that DMT medical research book I was mm-hmm. telling you about. It, I downloaded it in Kindle form, and it's jumping like it moves characters around sometimes. Yeah. So it's kind of like reading a dyslexic's writing. Right. But I think if you got the PDF, it would be clean. Right. Another fun thing, and this is for the geeks, tons of magazines. Magazines like... <laughs> For some reason, lots of 80s computing magazines, which that's pretty geeky right there. Right. But uh, old pulp fiction type magazines. Oh, yeah. So thousands of sci-fi pulp mags from the right. 50s and the 60s. Um, some pulp westerns, huh. um, adventure, things like that. It, you, If you're a geek... You can spend literally hours and hours just digging well, I'm a history geek, so yeah, that would be. So check that out. I will. And you, you know, you can search. You can type in World War Two or whatever, and huh, tons of Vietnam stuff. Yeah, and I bet there's tons of history. Yeah, I mean, just tons of historical just stuff. Actual doc- from these yeah. libraries that hey, we got to do something with this shit. Yeah. So they're scanning it. You know. Yep. So I, I highly recommend it if you just. Need some time to kill, or you're curious, you will find something to. And I think if you've got a library card, that you can actually borrow modern books too huh. through it. Also, I, I hadn't delved into that, but I've been doing that with because uh, I've done the interlibrary loan stuff right. with my local library, which is which is good. I've done that for years, but then uh, I've recently finally did the ebook through the library, right. the interlibrary. Loan through the, and it's for current stuff. It's good, and that's my dig with public library. Which I, I mean, I love libraries. Sure, I can, I can get lost in them. I just spend so much time in libraries. I read all the books, every one of them. Tremendous, yeah, huge. And uh, but they they don't have everything. We've well, got, yeah. we've gotten used to Amazon. To where, I know it, you know, and, and you know they've only got so much space. Then we've got so much money, and you know. Like if you go to a library sale or something, yeah, I'm always seeing books. Like, why are you getting rid of this book? Well, there, I emailed Professor Brad one night last one night. Emailed him, texted him uh, a question about something, and uh, he replied back. He's like, "Yeah, he's like, here's a book I think you'd love." Said it's it's kind of expensive though, and uh, but they have it on Amazon. I went and looked it up, and it's a twelve hundred dollar book, right? That was written like in. 1860. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, holy shit. Well, go look on <laughs> on there and they may exactly. have it. Cuz the interli- the point of that was the interlibrary. I was like, well, surely Somebody. some library has digitized this and has it and I can't fucking find it anywhere. Well, check out archive.org and maybe they do. Yeah. I would do both a uh author search and uh a search by the title cuz right. you might, you know, it's people uploading it whether mm-hmm. it's you know, individuals or it's right. actual archivists. So your mileage may vary yeah. on accuracy. 
but I found things that, um, just interesting things. Right. But I've also found things like there was a, there's a magician named Ricky Jay. And if you've ever watched any Paul Thomas Anderson movies, you've probably seen him and just didn't know who he was. In Boogie Nights, he is the cameraman. Okay. Kind of heavy set guy with a beard and balding, old, middle-aged, older guy. Uh-huh. And then in uh, Magnolia, he is the producer for the quiz show. Huh. So he's talking to the the guy that was the book librarian. Cop. God, I hadn't watched that movie in so long. Anyway, it's such this a guy, good movie. Ricky Jay is a he's a magician, he's an actor, but he's also a magician historian. Yeah. And he de- he honed the card throwing technique where he throws cards into mm-hmm. uh like watermelons and stuff right. and sticks right. them. His books were out of print for years. I don't know if they still are, but they were very expensive if you could find them on uh-huh. the second hand market. They had one of his books just download it. Just download. I'll be damned. So your book might be there. It might be. And I've noticed that there were some books that might not be there under some of the big collections. Because you can just go dig into the University of Ottawa's collection or whatever, okay. you know. Right. But there's a library of India. And these sons of bitches are scanning shit right and left. Like, right. whatever. We don't care about your copyright. We're scanning <laughs> it. So I found some books that uh, I couldn't find. I, I'm loving it, what I found. And yeah, I'm going to check that out. Uh, like I said, I read... You got a new hobby. I read the short story version of Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 451. Okay. Which, I mean, I've obviously I've read the book. The book. Yeah. And read and loved the movie, but he wrote a short story originally called The Fireman, which huh. was in an epi- uh, issue of Galaxy, which was one of the big sci-fi pulps. Okay. So, you know, just tons of things out okay. there. And... If you're super geeky, even geekier, you can play old PC and Apple II computer games on your browser from the 80s. Really? So if you wanted to play, like I played uh, Defender of the Crown, which was a medieval DOS game, sat there and played it like it was 1986. No shit. Yeah. Because they have like lots of, I don't know if you've ever heard of emulators. But emulator is a program that lets you run other operating systems on your PC. And so they have like emulators. So have you just gone on this site on your PC or have you done it on your phone? I've just done it on my PC. Okay. I haven't done it on my phone. Um, it might be harder. It might be harder. And it would definitely be harder to read some of this stuff. Right. But an emulator, like you can get almost every old Nintendo game okay, to run yeah. on an emulator or right. arcade games and stuff right. like that. Not on your phone. Well, probably on your phone now. But back then, when I got into them, it was on PC. But they just have it in the web browser now where you yeah. can just play whatever. Huh. It doesn't always work great. Right. You know, it's, it's what it is. Right. But for nostalgia, you can sit there and probably play the every version of uh, Oregon Trail ever and get dysentery over and over again. Over and over. So, anyway. Very cool. That's my takeaway for uh, this episode. That's I learned something. So archive, let us know what you're archive. reading. Let us know what you find on archive.org. Let us know your New Mexico penitent uh, parade experiences yep. and anything else. And I guess uh, email us at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com. And I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. The fuck are you doing? It looks like they're doing. It's my wife. Bill? You're embarrassing me. Yeah, little Bill. Shut up.
Kill Bill. Hey, Kurt, how's it going? What's wrong with you? Oh, my fucking wife, man. She's down there, some idiot's dick in her. Everybody's standing around watching. It's a fucking embarrassment. Yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, listen. For the shoot, I want to talk about the look. I want to see if I get in this new zoom lens. Right. I was wondering if we'd be able to look into getting some more lights, too, you know. Jack wants a minimal thing. Yeah, well, very often minimal means a lot more photographically, I think, than, well, I think most people understand. I understand. No, no, hey, I, I know you understand. I'm talking about some other people. I think what Jack is talking about is minimal. Not really natural, but minimal. Okay, fine. Uh, I was just saying... I understand. Yeah, because I'm trying to give each picture its own look. Can we talk about this later? Oh, yeah. You gotta go somewhere, or...? Yeah, no. I, I mean... <laughs> you know, because I was hoping, you know, for the shoot tomorrow, we could send Rocky down and he could pick it up. Kurt. No, hey, gotcha. You gotta go somewhere. So, hey, what the fuck? It's only the photography of the film we're talking about. Are you giving me shit, Kurt? No, hey, no way with it, though. My fucking wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway, Kurt. All right? I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. Okay? Okay, no big deal. Sorry. All right? Gotcha. How does it think? What makes it move? Why does it breathe? Questions anyone would ask about a man if they'd never seen one before. So for five days, a man was borrowed. The story that Travis Walton and five other witnesses told was so unbelievable, so unimaginable, that it has become the most famous case of UFO abduction ever reported. And world-class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Sally. Good night from Dallas, Texas.